and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about health and hit points. Have video games figured out the best way to represent a character's vitality, or is the human condition too complex to be represented by a single number? Tell me to discuss hit points is a man who hoards all the Phoenix kits in Apex. It's my good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? I am well, and it's true. I, I do main Lifeline, and I just don't trust my teammates with the with the Phoenix kits. So Wait, I, I will so dole you, them out you take, as, you as take I see the fit. Best, you take the best healing character mm-hmm. and the best heals? Yeah, well, I, I'll hand them out. a monster. I will hand them out if you earn them from me. <laughs> Wait, so what, what can people do to earn Phoenix kits from Lifeline in just get, Apex, Jared? Get, just get good. Just get good. <laughs> All right. You're that guy. I love it. <laughs> uh, Jared, yep. sometimes I like, sometimes when we come up with topics for this show, I'm never sure exactly how the topic is going to go over, right? Like there's sometimes we pick a topic and I go like, oh dude, there's, I don't know if there's going to be enough to talk about for a while. And then when we get into it, it's like, sometimes it's pretty good. This one, I, I had that same feeling. I was like hit points, health. I don't, you know, like it, it, it's such a ubiquitous concept, but I, I, I wasn't sure if there was going to be enough to talk about. But then when I started writing these notes, I, I there's going to be tons. There's going to be tons. And we found an incredible guest to talk about hit points with. She's the managing editor of GameDaily.biz and editor-in-chief at Super Parent. Please welcome to the show, Amanda Farrow. Amanda, welcome to the show. Did I get your last name right? I, I You always did. Okay, perfect. I, I think that you're possibly one of the only people that I didn't previously know that actually got my last name right nice so we're you. doing something nice right here we uh we're very well known for getting people's names absolutely right on this show long time <laughs> listeners to this show will know that we nail names especially that's not true if it's that's uh, not true we are Japanese terrible or, yeah it's <laughs> we we're horrible at getting names so i'm proud i got one amanda <laughs> you how, did it. how are you welcome to the show i'm good thank you so much for having me on the show today no it is it is an honor thank you so much for being here i know Around this time of year, everyone is super busy for GDC. So for you to take time out of uh, out of what little free time I'm sure you have to, to spend it what with us. What is free time even? <laughs> I, I'm not even sure. <laughs> See, I've got a kid and I long for the days when I had free time. But you've got that multiplied by, by how many? I have four kids. Where? How are you even? I don't even know. How are you even recording with us right now? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Lots of help. Oh, lots and lots of help, including a teenager. So that's okay. very helpful. All right. <laughs> well, again, Amanda, thank you for being here. Now, I'm I'm curious. You, you do a lot of writing about video games, but I want to know where. Do. How did you get started in video games? Where did Where did you start writing about video games? I have been writing about video games now uh, for almost ten years. It's weird to think about, but it will be ten years next February. I started off by writing a review of Heavy Rain. I loved Heavy Rain. I had a number of problems with that game, Sean! but I loved it so much. Yeah, the, the Sean yelling was is something that is still referenced in my household where I'll yell at the children and everyone will laugh because they know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I wrote I wrote a review and I submitted it on on a website that's not, a, not really around anymore in the same capacity. It was called Gaming Angels and it was a website that was run entirely by women. It was for women. And I was like, oh, this isn't too intimidating. I can work with a bunch of women. So it was great. I 
started reviewing games on the regular. I became like their uh, tabletop wargaming expert because I've been playing Warhammer 40k for a number of years as well. Oh, so. wow. That's going to tie in perfectly for something we got coming up. Yeah. All right. right oh, on. I'm, I, I love it. I, I haven't played Warhammer in a while because parenting, but let me tell you. Yeah. So anyway, that's how I ended up getting started in the industry was as this lowly little news editor and you know, eventually worked my way up to talk about tabletop war games, and that was really fun. So, yeah, since then I've been, oh my goodness, I've been everywhere. I've been all over the place. Were you working freelance at the time? You were just picking up gigs? Yeah. The weird thing about this industry is that it's so difficult to find a job that actually pays because they'll pay you in games instead. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what my life was for like seven years. Um, I wasn't full-time at, uh, at writing, writing about games until 2016 and that was after I sold my business I worked as a web designer and developer and I sold my client list and I got out of it and I was like I'm gonna start writing full-time so that's when I actually did this full-time so I've been doing this full-time for almost three years so what is the transition from freelance into full-time employment like like how do you, how does someone who's interested in writing make the jump from being someone who's freelancing to being a permanent fixture at some place like gamedaily.biz Oh man, that is, that's a tough one. There are very, very, very few full-time staff positions available in general. And you need a ton of experience and a ton of like a broad writing background and a broad background in editing um, in addition to having a decent platform on places like Twitter and Facebook. And in my case, you also have to have something decent on LinkedIn because we talk about industry news on GDBiz. So yeah, it's really hard. It's almost impossible. And freelancing, while really challenging, at least you have your your pick. You can go pick and choose where you want to work and the pieces you want to work on. Whereas if you're full-time employed, you have somebody like me that's just like, no, I need you to write about this thing. No, you don't have a choice. You have to do it. <laughs> the skills that allowed you to move from freelance into full-time, were those skills that you picked up from working freelance for so long or was that something that you had developed elsewhere did you did you go to school or or did you pick up those skills um somewhere else so the editorial stuff so the management of a site and management of other freelancers that stuff i've just kind of picked up over the years because i've been in a lot of man managing editorial roles for the last i don't know five-ish years almost so that helped, but it also helped because I ran my own business for a long time. So I know how to manage people. I know how to manage budgets and make sure that, you know, everything's SEO compliant and everything like that. So it's all stuff that I taught myself over a number of years. I didn't actually go to school for journalism. I went to school for computer science. I'm assuming that, at, I mean, now everything is obviously becoming more and more and more online. I mean, this this sure. is this is old news. I'm sure that the uh, that background has helped. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So what is a managing editor? Like what is what is your day to day like as a managing editor of a, a news outlet like Game Daily? Well, being a being a managing editor is usually all about managing the content and managing the flow of the content. I am actually transitioning into the EIC role at GDBiz, which we're supposed to be announcing this week. So I can tell you guys. Ooh. Um, yes, it's I, I got a I got an upgrade. Very, Congratulations. Very nice. Congratulations. Thank you. So yeah, the managing editor is, is uh, their responsibility is to make sure that the content is constantly going up on the site. So they're uh, in charge of the budget. 
So I'm given a specific number that I need to hit each month, both, both for my news budget and for my freelance feature budget. And I have to manage that. I have to manage the freelancers myself. So we have a separate Slack channel where I just have my freelance news team. They're incredible. I love that team. They're just, ugh, they're just the best. And yeah, so I have to make sure that content is constantly going up. I'm researching. I'm interviewing people and studios to figure out, you know, where the hottest stories are and what will be best for the traffic on our site based on what people are most interested in learning about. It's a, it's a complex role. There's a lot of a lot of juggling and I'm a reporter on top of it. So I'm also writing on a regular basis both for Game Daily Biz and for Super Parent. So a lot of juggling. I'm exhausted just hearing about all this stuff that you're juggling. <laughs> Holy cow. You are so busy. I'm so busy. That's I'm fantastic. surprised I have time for video games. I I am surprised you have time for video games also. <laughs> Uh, so, so you're moving up to being an EIC. How is that transition going? And, and, and what is your responsibility going to be once you take over that position? So once I fully step into the role, and I mostly have been in the role now for the last several weeks, I'm going to be responsible for the overall vision of the outlet. So where we're going, what we're looking to achieve over the next quarter, next month, next week, whatever. I don't usually plan more than a quarter in advance because it's media and to do such things would be folly. So yeah, I'm I'm more in charge of the the broader scope. I'm still I'm looking for my managing editor. So I'm still me and now I'm me plus. So <laughs> I'm still doing the day-to-day -day site management stuff on top of the broader um the broader vision for Game Daily and for Super Parents. So yeah, it's like the 30 foot the 30,000 foot view to the 10,000 foot view and then I'm also in the trenches. So it's uh like I said, yeah, it's a lot of plate spinning. Do you have And then uh, there's plates on top of those plates. It's pretty it's pretty impressive. <laughs> Too many plates. I've been uh, so many plates. <laughs> Do you have any specific visions for things you want to see changed? Are you like, "Oh, we're we're definitely going to put that espresso maker in the break room now that I'm in charge?" Or, like, <laughs> <laughs> Do, well, Do you have any or maybe room, more important decisions to make? The break room um is actually my office at home. Uh we're scattered everywhere mm, okay. um, all over the place so we all work from home which presents its own set of challenges but our slack channel is always you know hopping it's always on fire even on the weekends which is like guys go have lives <laughs> i promise you could go play video games i won't be upset we don't work on weekends at game daily so uh so yeah the the things that i'm really looking to improve and that i have been improving is our approach to breakout features so timely features that are a little bit shorter that allow us to comment on things like what happened at THQ Nordic? <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and that kind of thing. So we, we wait in on that. Over there? Speaking of mm. things changing quickly um, in media, I saw a tweet from uh, Jason Trier where he was like, I was away from Twitter for two hours. What is happening right now? When that THQ Everything thing. was on fire. Everything yeah. was on fire. <laughs> That's what happens when you leave social for about... 20 minutes these days Ugh. is either a company is laying off 800 people or they are participating in an AMA on 8chan. Yeah. And, so, and trying to find a way to lay off 800 people, apparently. Yeah. Things are, things are constantly on fire. And because things are constantly on fire, we like to make sure that we are presenting the news with context. Like that's what Game Daily is all about is we're not necessarily looking to break news. But we want to be presenting news with context and with nuance, um, not not with opinion necessarily, because that's what the features are for. But we like to make sure that we are talking about things like mass layoffs 
and talking about the business reasons behind layoffs and everything like that because we're an industry site, right? It's not that we don't look. I had friends that worked at Blizzard that lost their jobs and it was really horrible. And having to write that story was one of the most emotional stories I've ever written in my entire career. It was awful. Reporting on 775 people losing their jobs is unbelievably hard. And I mean, it sounds like a lot of people, but the game industry as a whole is pretty tight knit. So it's not surprising it that is. like all that stuff overlaps. And yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine. Yeah, it it definitely does. I mean, when you've been working in the industry as long as I have, you know, you make you make friends. I mean, I had PR people that I that I liked and I respected. And I mean, everything was very professional. But I mean, so I still care about them as human beings. Oh, yeah, of course. So and we had past guest Jenny Scheuerlein. She recently. She's amazing. Oh no, she's she's an incredible human being. But she started working at ArenaNet, and then they announced their yeah. layoff. And and just even just knowing her and knowing, you know, seeing that experience through through her eyes, at least what she was putting onto social media, it it it, it is tense because you do know these people, and it is it is hard to see them, especially someone like her, who's moved you know moved to the United States to take this job. To then have that job in jeopardy and you know that's just one of hundreds of stories that seem to all be that seems to be happening multiple times lately it has been there have been a number of different mass layoffs over the last six months and it really got kicked off by capcom vancouver which closed down and that's not my hometown but that's where i spent like a decade of my life i grew up in british columbia so you know, it was really hard to see something like that happen essentially in my backyard. And then it was telltale and then it kind of spiraled from there. And then yeah. a number of different studios have closed, which is it's it's heartbreaking because, like you said, this industry is so tight knit and it's so it's it seems like it should be enormous, but it's really not not in North America. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's small. Everybody knows each other. Yeah. So it's yeah, that's uh. That's the kind of thing that we have to deal with, though, and we still have to remain relatively objective when we're talking about our friends losing their jobs is, all right, well, they lost their jobs. That's really terrible. And internally, our hearts can be breaking, but we still can't be injecting editorial comment into these stories. So that's, you know, that's what we're going to be doing more of. And we're going to be doing more along the, the breakout features and making sure that we're commenting on you know, the stuff like THQ Nordic yeah. and getting perspective from people in the industry. Like we ended up interviewing a number of uh, PR folks and community managers that weighed in on it. And they're like, what, why? Just why? <laughs> there was, was a lot of why. That was the collective sentiment of the internet on that day. Yeah, it was, it was definitely <laughs> why though dot gif <laughs> collectively. <laughs> Well, cool. It's it, it's great to hear that you got a vision for uh, where you're taking the site as you move into your new position. Congratulations again. Thank you. Tell me about Super Parent. As a as a parent myself, I've got a three year old son. What what is Super Parent? How, how does how does the website help me? Oh, Super Parent is great. I'm not sure if it necessarily help you because you are well versed in gaming and in technology. I'm thinking. Um, I so wouldn't. I wouldn't, for... I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't make that assumption just because I have a podcast <laughs> I've, I've demonstrated on here many times I know very little <laughs> okay well that's fair so anyway so super parent is for parents that are raising children in the digital age so they have a lot of questions about you know YouTube about the video games that their kids could be playing but maybe shouldn't be playing 
what's Fortnite and why are we letting our kids play so much Fortnite and should we be letting our kids play this much Fortnite and how do we handle these kinds of discussions around you know super parenting is the the new column that I've been trying to spin up now for the last little while that talks a lot about having hard conversations with your kids about technology so we have a a piece that went up several weeks ago that talks about how to have a conversation with your kids about YouTube so not just little kids talking about YouTube, but talking to your teenagers about YouTube when you've never talked about it before. So, I mean, that's what Super Parent really is. We have a lot of tabletop stuff about, you know, getting your family to the table to play tabletop, ta to play board games and to play card games together and the different ways that we can connect with our kids playing video games. And, you know, we do a lot of, a lot of first looks so that parents can get their eyeballs on a game and be like, okay, I kind of see why my kid wants this game, or mm, I don't really think this is appropriate for my kid based on this footage. You know, we're trying to give parents as many tools as we can to make good consumer decisions and to make good decisions about content. Very cool. My wife works for the uh, the state, and she does a lot of stuff like that too, talking to parents. Well, now she oversees the department that does it, but um, getting a lot of information like that out there about internet safety and stuff like that. So. Maybe I'll have to, I might have to send her your way. Please do. So how is your role at Super Parent different from your role at Game Daily? They sound very, knowing nothing about like the writing industry mm -hmm. or the journalism industry, the, the titles sound so similar, but I'm, I'm sure there's like an ocean between the two of them. Well, there's an ocean of difference in the audiences and in the content that we're making. So over on Game Daily, that is hard-hitting journalism. We are... You know, everything is very much so being put through the lens and the scope of journalistic integrity and ethics. And we have a code of conduct that we follow that I put together. The news, like everything is really stringent. If we have fun, but I'm a really tough editor over at Game Daily. Over on Super Parent, we have a lot of fun. We're, we're trying to make navigating the digital world something enjoyable for parents and for kids and even when we're talking about challenging stuff we follow it up with something like ready player mom which is my stream that i do every friday um it's a great it's title lots and lots of fun thank you yesterday we ended up playing it was a frenetic stream yesterday we ended up playing treasure stack and i was terrible at it and then we played tetris 99 which i was excellent at and <laughs> nice. then we ended up playing stellaris on the playstation 4 so we kind of bounced around a lot. I mean, I that's that's the big difference is that the content is very different and the tone is very different. And the way in which I approach the vision is very different. So on Super Parent, I am able to go out and have these conversations in the community and make an impact like that. Whereas with Game Daily, everything that I'm doing makes an impact on the industry, could potentially rather make an impact on the industry itself. Whereas on Super Parent, we're not really looking for that. We're looking to make a difference for parents. We're looking to help them help their kids. And that's really what matters to us over on Super Parent. So the titles are the same. The approach is very different because the audiences are very different. And Super Parent sounds great. It sounds like, I, I remember when I was a kid and I was playing video games, like my, my parents had almost no idea what I was doing. And especially when, like, the PlayStation 2 introduced the the network hub, the, like, the, mm. the peripheral that you could attach to the back of the PlayStation 2 that lets you actually play games online. And I yep. there was no oversight from my parents on any of that stuff. And now as things, as gamers are becoming more connected, I mean, almost by necessity to play a lot of these games, it, it's great that there's a resource out there like Super Parent to help people like me 
keep up with the issues that might be facing my kid because I'm you know I'm, I'm familiar with Fortnite, but I've I've never actually played it you know so mm. it is cool to have. Whereas a I was playing it last night. <laughs> on oh nice. My phone. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, it's all about it's all about that Apex. That's where I'm at. I'm on that Apex. <laughs> That's jam okay. Now. okay. Apex is great. <laughs> I we just we just released a piece on uh, Game Daily that was all about Apex Legends and how how it's doing a great job with the ping system and how accessible it is for folks that are disabled for gamers that are disabled. So yes, I like Apex Legends quite a bit. I am awful at it, like unbelievably bad. So oh, oh, me, I just me too. don't. Oh. Thank goodness. Because <laughs> I'm so bad at it. The only Battle Royale game I will ever be good at is Tetris 99. I've had to, I've, I've just, I'm resigned. There you go. There's nothing else I can do. Before we recorded, Jared and I were talking about how we're both terrible at Tetris. But I, I love Tetris. Like, you put me in front of a Tetris machine, I could play it all night, but I will not get any better at it. I will be just <laughs> as bad, maybe even worse by the end of the night than I am at the start. <laughs> yeah, there's a mood. Yeah, big same. I'm I'm not I'm not terrible at Tetris, but I feel like the longer I sit and I play it, the worse I get somehow because I just mm-hmm. I get so into it and then I just don't pay attention as much. I don't know. I'm not I'm never going to be a skill-based gamer, not ever. <laughs> I'll just go play Anthem. <laughs> but you think you would Makes think like feel better. You would think like Tetris 99 like okay, like odds are in like 1 in 100 matches I should win at least one of them, right? Like it's it's me and 99 mm-hmm. other people. I should win one. That would not be me. That would not be me. Someday. Maybe first one out, huh? Those are the type of games time. where you, you, you go in, you're like, yes, I understand the concept. And then you dive a little deeper and you're like, okay, I understand the strategy that I'm supposed to be implementing. But then you start doing worse because you understand the game better. Uh, that's At least that's my experience. <laughs> that's Tetris or, in a mood it's like, right I, there. <laughs> I know a little bit too much about this and now I'm somehow worse at the game because I'm trying to do too much. I, yeah. and, I, and I've resigned to like a single strategy of like, I just leave a single column and I just wait for that long piece to just, come. Just that hope long piece, for the long piece. Yeah, and if the long piece never comes, I just die because I have no, I have no <laughs> backup strategy, no backup strategy in those situations. Uh, I was experimenting with that today. I was like, no, this is a very bad strategy. I'm not doing this again. It's the only strategy I know. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. No, but super, super parent sounds great though because I mean I remember the days when the the tough conversation to have with your children was about the birds and the bees, and now you have to mm-hmm. navigate things like. What are all these flat earth videos that are being promoted to the yeah, top of your yeah. child's YouTube videos? Fear. And uh, yeah, like that. I don't, I am not a parent yet, but I have no idea how you even begin it's, that conversation. I, <laughs> it's really scary. And that's why I put together that primer about YouTube. And we, we've actually instituted a no YouTube rule in our household. Oh, me too. I, I can't necessarily keep my eyeballs on my children 24 hours a day. So we have. The 14-year-old, she's almost 15. She has access to YouTube, but she really only uses it for makeup DIY videos or for like yeah. videos to how to do her hair. Or she's watching music videos or something like that. And she knows that at any time, because mom has a computer science degree, <laughs> um, I can, uh, can remote right into that phone and I can make her life really difficult by figuring out what the heck she's been doing and she can't hide it from me because everything's in the log. I'm, I'm terrified. So. <laughs> <laughs> the future is scary. So the kids are, my kids are great though. They, they've never, they've never really looked at YouTube as like this thing that they really like. They love Netflix. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and they, right now, they're having a huge Minecraft party. Like, they have friends over right now. They're building stuff in Minecraft together, sitting on the couch. And some of them, some of them are on their iPads, and others are on the Xbox, and one of them's on, uh, one of them's on a laptop. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things my kids end up doing, is they just like building stuff. They don't really like consuming. They like consuming cartoons, but they like building everything else. Oh, that's, but that's me also. I know. I'm like, I'm in my 30s. That sounds like a good Saturday. I love cartoons. All the cartoons. That sounds great. (laughs) Before before we jump into talking about health and hit points, I'll just quickly share why YouTube is not allowed in my house anymore. Over the holidays, I put a a compilation of Christmas songs on YouTube for my kid. It was just like cartoons accompanied by, you know, Christmas music. And I was not paying full attention. And when I came back, it was a video of a grown man doing like dental surgery on Play-Doh teeth. And that was when I decided like, nope, this is not, this is not going to be in my house anymore. <laughs> it was, Mm-mm. it was just as like, just his hands. That's all you could see, but it's definitely a grown man doing dental surgery on Play-Doh teeth. Uh, and that, and, okay. and Weird. we don't have it in our house anymore. <laughs> He's not allowed to watch YouTube anymore. Anyway, on that, on that very disturbing note, why don't we jump into our discussion of hit points and Jared, What's the, what's the origin of, of health and hit points in video games? Well, like so many of the concepts that we talk about, a lot of it kind of comes back to pen and paper RPGs and, and other uh, games, board games that preceded video games. A couple of the ones that we found were Ironclads and Don't Give Up the Ship. They were both naval-based miniature war games developed by Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax who would go on later to make the the D&D franchise. In most miniature war games at the time, your player or your soldiers would take a single hit and die. But because these were naval games, they wanted to to make it a little bit more unique and your ships could take several hits before sinking. Uh, They found that this approach is a little bit more fun because it it ramped up the tension quite a bit. You can get low on health, but you still had that chance to come back. Uh, When Arneson and Gygax later developed D&D, they found that people didn't like the idea that their player character could die in one hit so they adapted that idea of of being able to take multiple hits uh, and used it on you know the personal scale for the player amanda you play miniature war games that's incredible i sure have (laughs) that's incredible where 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 do like arneson and gygax fit into the uh i don't know like the the pantheon of of developers of miniature games because i know that they were there early i know that they were both influenced by games that preceded them but did they did they make a big impact on miniature games moving forward besides just the D&D that we know them for? I think in I think in some way they definitely did. I mean Games Workshop and that's where I have most of my experience in tabletop war games. Games Workshop has been around since the early 80s, I think. And I know that they were heavily influenced by by Dungeons and Dragons and by you know the tabletop war games that came before. I don't know if Games Workshop and Warhammer 40k or Warhammer Fantasy or anything like that. I don't know if they're necessarily looking back now and saying, hey, we got all of this influence from Gygax and Arneson, but there's no way to just like, I would not dispute that they have had their hands in almost everything to do with tabletop gaming and video games. They have been so influential, even just in a very tangential way in both industries that it would be impossible for me to say uh yeah they definitely didn't influence warhammer yeah Yeah, they definitely did in whatever way shape or form they 100 percent did so many of the topics that we talk about on this show 
have roots that can be traced back to D and D. So I, I'm sure that that influence extends to things like miniatures, like you're talking about. Like it, it, it is amazing how much of what we consider modern video game design or game design in general goes back to these two guys and and the work that they did in developing fun, playable systems. Absolutely, I think that the the earliest the early, like if we're if we're looking at the influences of of what Gygax and Arneson did for modern gaming, it, it's all really rooted in how the RPGs in the 90s ended up implementing D&D 2nd Edition, especially in their algorithms when they were pulling together things like the Temple of Elemental Evil or Icewind Dale or Baldur's Gate or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And these are obviously, these are all set in D&D worlds, but these were the basis for a lot of modern RPGs and the way that they handle things like hit points and the way that they handle things like um, armor saves and, and everything like that. Like everything got its root in, in D&D thanks to those early examples of, uh, of RPGs. And we actually have a few examples from the 1970s that were directly influenced by D&D. What do we got, Jared? Well, we have D&D. Literally the, the lettered N and D uh, and Pettit 5 for the Play-Doh mainframe computer. Those came out in 1975. And we talked about both of those. We talked about D&D on episode 7, Boss Battles, and Pettit 5 in our leveling episode. As a quick refresher, each of those games were made by people working at Illinois University connected to the Play-Doh mainframe computers. Gary Wisenhunt and Ray Wood developed D&D and Rusty Rutherford developed Pettit 5. And both of those games took a ton of inspiration from D&D, D&D, the, the uh, pen and paper version, and uh, were actually recognized as the precursor to roguelikes. But both of those games adapted the idea of HP and hit points for the player characters. In D&D, we cited that as the first game to include bosses. The more difficult enemies had more hit points, you know, either hundreds or thousands of hit points. Uh, or hits, as they were called in, in D&D. So uh, they, they just kind of took that and adapted it for, you know, an interactive media source. And here we are today with similar, still similar mechanics all these years later. Yeah, I think, I mean, and, and we'll explore this further as we as we talk about it more. But I think functionally, the idea of hit points has really not changed a whole lot since this point in in game development. And and the ways that hit points get displayed and all that kind of stuff has changed, um, you know, the mechanics around hit points, but the, just that core idea of like a, a pool of resources that represent a character's health is we, we haven't moved from that point in a, in a very long time. And before we move on too too much further into this discussion, I just wanted to mention that uh, a lot of this information comes from a article titled the history of hit points. It was written by Jody McGregor. Normally, when I put together the, uh, the the history section for our show notes, I do a lot of the research myself because the information is spread out all over the place. Like, there's not really like one good resource. But Jody did an incredible job compiling like a really good history. So when this episode goes live, I'll be sure to tweet out the uh, the link to that article so everyone can check it out. It's pretty cool um, and, and uh, well written and well researched. So just wanted to make sure we got that out there. I didn't have to do any work this episode, Jared. <laughs> good, good. So that's the best episode. 
Um, so Amanda, when we're talking about HP and hit points, what's sort of the first thing that springs to your mind? Like what leap, what leaps to the front of your brain when we're talking about hit points? What leaps to the front of my mind when I'm talking about hit point, when we're talking about hit points, I think that the first thing that leaps to mind for me is, is Dungeons and Dragons and keeping track of my HP and making sure that I'm not falling below a certain ratio so that I can, you know, be a cleric and heal everybody. <laughs> Are you, so you leap straight, like when you think HP, you, you jump to the pen and paper RPG. That's like where your mind goes first when you're thinking about HP. That's, yep, exactly. That's the, that's the first instance for me where I ever thought about hit points as a mechanic. I started playing pen and paper RPGs when I was nine. Prior to that, I had some knowledge of, of you know, like, yes, if I take a hit in Duke Nukem 3D, I'm going to die at some point. Um, but I didn't really think of it as a mechanic. It was just, I have to stay alive. Mm -hmm. But when I started having to manage my own hit points, it made it, made it something real, I suppose. I can... I, I think, yeah, it made it real to me, and it had roots in in actual reality versus I'm just playing a game. Well, no, this is part of the game. So yeah, that's that's what springs to mind first for me is managing my own hit points. No, that's interesting because I I didn't get into pen and paper RPGs until I was already into my adulthood. So when I think about hit points, the first thing that I think of is a like a red bar, a red bar that's like filled to a certain amount, and if the bar runs out, you're dead. That's that's. Mm -hmm. That's what leaps to mind first, but um, yeah, totally makes sense if your first experience with with um, like really managing HP comes from pen and paper. That's where your mind mind goes first. How about you, Jared? What do you think about hit points? What jumps to your mind? Yeah, I I, I think I have a similar childhood as you, where I I didn't really get into pen and paper until later. So one of the earlier games I can remember playing was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the Nintendo, and you had you had hit points in that game, and you could find pizza and stuff to. Uh, restore those points mm -hmm. but yeah it was just a, a way to see how close you were to game over and, and a lot of those games before that was you kind of get hit and you die and you might have lives like in mario and stuff like that where if you run out of lives the game is over uh, but this gave you a little bit of breathing room and i remember being a little bit more tense because you had the opportunity to come back if you could just you know step up to the plate on on the difficulty yeah and that's a that's a great point because i think a lot of the old games and now like I don't know how much like younger people are even familiar with this, but it used to be one hit and you died. Yep. I've been playing the NES classic with my kid recently. I just have him sit on my lap and kind of help him manage the buttons on the controller. But there's definitely games on there. Like oh, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but Gal I think it's Galaga that's on the NES classic. That sounds about right. And in that one, you know, you're, you're a spaceship shooting aliens and you take a hit and you blow up. And, and basically the length of time you play that game is, how many lives you have, like you're saying, Jared. But on that console also is Castlevania, which is a game that has actual hit points. And in that game, you're trying to find that sweet, sweet turkey, that wall turkey, to <laughs> replenish your health. Um, I, I, forgive my ignorance, but did Castlevania have an arcade release, or is that straight to console? I don't believe it. I don't think it had an uh, arcade release. I think that was just I don't think so either. Because I, I suspect that has something to do with that uh, mechanic. Like, there's probably a, a good correlation between how lives, you know, how it worked towards game over, whether it was lives mm -hmm. or HP, because if it was lives, you could always put in more quarters a lot of the times, and that would uh, kind of drive that game design. This is probably maybe the hardest question I'm going to ask on this, because since we landed on this topic and I've been putting show notes together, even writing the show notes for me was kind of difficult because I didn't have a great answer to this one question. So 
Amanda, I'm going to make you <laughs> answer this question. But do it. What what do hit points actually represent? Like obviously, like in a game, I, I think most people know. Okay, if I run out of hit points, I die. But in in like a real world context, what are hit points trying to say? Like what what are hit points? Oh man, this is such an existential question. <laughs> I feel like we have to go to like what is life? philosophy for this or something. Probably. Seriously, I think it's very existential. Um, hit points with regards to the real world, I mean, it it feels like it has everything to do with vitality. So not necessarily how much blood you still have pumping in your system because that's how you actually stay alive as a human being. <laughs> but the vitality of your... I don't know. When I think about hit points, because there are multiple lives, I feel like that has to do with something spiritually. So if you die in the game, what version of your character dies? Right? Oh, that's what that's what I think about when I think about hit points and I think about how how, you know, um it's managed within within anything from a video game where you have multiple lives or a tabletop game where you are put in a position where you have to heal yourself back up or you have to you have to roll a brand new character. So in a video game, I feel like it's very existential. And in a tabletop game, I feel like it represents whether or not you're able to continue with your adventure or it's representing how useful you are mm-hmm. <laughs> as a character <laughs> um, in tabletop. So yeah, I think it's a very existential question for video games, though, is what what does it represent spiritually existentially i think it represents vitality and maybe the vitality of your soul potentially your character's soul man that's deep it is that's way deeper <laughs> than i was thinking it's hard it. it's a hard question to answer it is i've been it's thinking so I've, been, hard. I've been thinking about this a lot um i play a lot of the uh, the lord of the rings lcg and there's uh, what a great game Oh, good. You, we, we actually had the, uh, the current developer for the game on this show in the past also, Caleb Grace. Um, That's so great. What a, what a wonderful game. I, so I, I love that game. But one of the, in that game, there's uh, resources. Like your heroes get resources. You spend them to recruit allies or play you know, events or play everything in the game. But then the concept comes up of like, well, how does, how does Bilbo Baggins pay to have this soldier help him like so resources must represent something else besides money it, it must represent influence or you know it must represent something beyond just i paid you money to do this thing for me so that that's where my mind went when i was thinking about like what do hit points represent in a game because it's it's hard it, it it's it's a weird one because it's such a gamey it's it's such a gamey game mechanic like it, it exists in games because we understand that Things are more fun if we don't just if our character that we're playing as doesn't just die right away. But we haven't figured out a good way to represent exactly what that is. Like we we have these hit points and it's for so long it's been the way that we prolong a game that we've sort of lost sight of the question of what of what it is or or what it means for a character. Jared, help me out, man. What? What do you think of when you think about hit points in a game? Like, what what does that represent? I you know, if we're coming at it from this angle, other than it being purely like a utility thing on the surface, I think it is a good way to either visually or numerically keep track of the mistakes that you've made and the ways that you are <laughs> learning from that. No, uh, not in a bad way. But could I but, could I, <laughs> could I get, but sure. can I get 
hit points in real life, please? <laughs> Could I get those hit points in real life? You know, you can you can see how many hit points you started with and how many you've lost. And if you really think about it, you know, either consciously or subconsciously, you are going back through like, why did I lose those hit points? Uh, how can I avoid that in the future? And what am I going to do now that my situation has changed? Uh, and I think all of those things are something that you think of either within a split second or, you know, in, like in a grand strategy perspective, something that alters the the way that you are playing the game. So I, I think that it is a good way to um, make players rethink their strategy or have to think on their feet and come up with a different version of that. And hit points are a good way to kind of keep track of that progress. That's actually a, a really great point. Sort of in a metaphorical sense, they are tracking the ways that you goofed <laughs> or, or the ways that you've learned you know if you come at if you think about the other ways the, ah, the things that you've learned half full i see yeah <laughs> that's actually really cool and i had not considered them uh, in that way amanda what are you playing right now that makes use of the idea of hit points in a in an interesting way in an interesting way well i've been playing i've been playing a lot of anthem that's where right. that's where i've been spending a lot of my time lately um, How do they handle everybody? HP? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you have these javelins and they are like mechs. So you have the health of the shield on your mech, which ends up deteriorating over time because you're being hit by little bullets and laser guns and everything like that in this game. And once you have reached a certain point with the health of your shield, it starts to impact the health of your javelin. So once you reach the end of that, you end up needing to be revived by a teammate or you end up having to fail out of the, that part of the mission and, and restart. But I think it's really interesting because there are two separate bars. So it's not necess- they don't communicate it as a your shield versus your health. It's all considered health. It's all considered the health of your shield versus the health of your, of your javelin. So I think that that's really interesting because I almost never see it represented like that, especially in science fiction games. So I like that. So I can go pick up like a little heart icon and it'll heal up the health of my shield or it'll heal up the health of my javelin. It, it's ap- applicable to both. And this idea of of shields is kind of new, new-ish, new-ish to the concept of hit points, at least, at least as far as my memory of older video games. When video games were first introducing more commonly this, this idea of hit points, you would just have the one pool. It was just the red bar or your like hit points out of a hundred, whatever it was. And then gradually this, this concept of shields got introduced, which for most games I think is functionally the exact same as hit points, but Mm -hmm. it plays psychologically like differently. Like, Oh, my shields are down. Now the tension is ratcheted up. Yeah. And, and destiny does that too. Destiny does it kind of an interesting way. Like, the first, I think it's the first like two thirds or three quarters of your health bar represent your shield. And then like the last quarter represents your health. But the last yes. quarter is actually half of your health. So like once your shields are down, like now you're in danger, but it actually, the last little bit of your bar goes down slower than the rest of your bar. It's, I'm curious, like does, does that have an impact on you, Amanda? Do you, do you feel that same way? Like does the, does the addition of this concept of shields ratchet up the tension for you? I don't feel like it necessarily ratchets up the tension for me because I think that it alleviates a lot of the tension. So hmm. when I when I think about playing some of the older games, 
rather, even when I'm thinking about playing Diablo 3, we can even look at something as modern as Diablo 3. I went and I rolled a hardcore character in Diablo 3 like a dummy. And <laughs> I am, I'm a fairly decent ARPG gamer and I'm okay. And, you know, I was playing a necromancer and they're pretty, they're pretty chill. But I got myself into a position, I would often find myself in a position where the tension was ratcheted up because I would lose this character forever mm. if I ended up painting myself into a corner. So in Diablo, it's always been like this. You have your health globe and you've got your mana globe. And these days now you've got some kind of like stamina globe or whatever, depending on what it is that you're, you're playing as. So if that health globe gets to a point where you can't heal yourself anymore in hardcore mode, that's it. You're done. You've deleted that character. All your gear has gone. <laughs> Everything you did is gone. I got to level 43 and my necromancer was tragically murdered. So to me, that ratchets up the tension. If I'm going to lose my character for good, I can't access that character anymore. I can't load back. I can't do anything. It's like playing XCOM on iron mode. Like, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, as as a chronic uh, XCOM save scummer, I I don't oh. I don't know how I could ever play that game. <laughs> nightmare. Like that. That's a nightmare fuel. That's what that is. I, I name all of my my soldiers after like my closest friends and family, and like, nope, I'm gonna save here. Oh, they died. Reload, and that you know, Reload, just keep doing that save scum. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing for me. Is that's that is the tension point. That is generally the the thing that can get my heart pumping the fastest. Is either. You know, I'll find myself in a no reload zone of whatever game I end up playing so that whether that's Anthem or Destiny or, or whatever, if I can't get up, then that's when the tension really explodes for me. Or if I have a hardcore character or if I'm playing in iron mode yeah. <laughs> on XCOM, you know, that's where it is just, I can't make a mistake. <laughs> that's a huge part of this conversation, I think, is what are the consequences for running out of hit points? Because permadeath is not really a mechanic in too many games but i feel like that's when it's it's when hp i think matters the most as a concept because there are so many games and one of the first games that comes to mind as a bad example is bioshock uh in that game you would at least on normal difficulties you would die but then you would just like respawn uh mm. in in a chamber somewhere not even losing progress you could literally just go no. and, like t take off half of the big daddy's hp die and then come back and finish him off so it didn't really ever feel like there was any consequences for losing all of your HP. Yeah, um, agreed. So there are some games where HP is present, but it really is not a, a mechanic that take into consideration too often. Yeah, and Red Dead Redemption 2 is one I've been thinking about as, as a game that we've talked about in the past as feeling like it has one of its feet in an older generation and an older style of game design. Health points in that game feel antiquated. When you die, like when you run out of hit points, it I, I'm not even really sure what the consequence is. Like if you're the in a mission. The consequence is having to wait for it to load uh, through the loading like, screen. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, and, and that's like Which a, is pretty cringy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> like a mechanical consequence. You know, and, and if you're in a mission, you go back to the last checkpoint and you just keep, you know, you just keep going. Your hit points almost became negligible at that point. And if you're in the real world, it just kind of places you somewhere else in the world nearby to where you were and you lose a little bit of money. I don't even know like what death is supposed to represent in those situations. Inconvenience. I guess. Yeah. Honestly, that's what, that's what death is starting to feel like in, in video games. Oh, this is such an inconvenience <laughs> as opposed to what it used to be, which is where you got your booty kicked mm -hmm. 
And you're going to have to go back quite a ways if you didn't end up saving because you're a silly pants like I tended to be with Baldur's Gate. And I'm like, oh, no, it's been three hours since I saved. <laughs> <gasps> there are no auto saves. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad what is feeling. Wrong with me? Yeah. yeah, that's a very, very bad feeling. I do not recommend that to anyone ever, as much as I love those games. I just like the idea of death becoming boring. Like, oh, died, eh. died again. Oh, such, died again. such a bore. Come back to me when you found something more interesting than death. <laughs> that's such an, that's a weird existential question, isn't it? It's a weird existential marker for us as a society where death now is boring. <laughs> oh, I, I'm only entertained by super death. I don't know if you've heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, though? That's really interesting because if we're thinking about the ways that hit points are represented interestingly... Or whatever. I know we're not necessarily there yet, but a game that I have been thinking about quite a bit lately is Vampire: The Eternal Struggle, which is an out-of-print collectible card game I used to play back in the late '90s. And there were two versions of Death. There is Death, and there is Super Death. There is. <laughs> nice. I'm not even kidding. That's what it reminded me of. Is is the Eternal Struggle, and there was Torpor, where you sent your you sent your opponent's vampire into this state of cannot do anything, can't heal, can't do anything until it gets its hands on a blood doll or on something that will help nourish it so it can become a vampire again. Or you can commit diablery, which is the final death for a vampire. So you are essentially putting a stake through its heart or setting it on fire and watching it vaporize. I like that because it works into the mythology of vampires. Yeah, well, cool. yeah, so Torpor and Diablery are like death and super death, okay. but for the undead, which is really <laughs> weird. <laughs> that's the meta, that's the most meta of meta things. I, I want to loop back around to something you had mentioned, though, um, when we were talking about healing in Anthem. Now, when you're playing mm -hmm. Anthem and the only way to heal is by picking up hearts that are around, does that feel like an old style of game design to you? Definitely. Okay. It definitely does. It sounds like it's, it sounds it's like an old antiquated. Style. It's definitely antiquated, and you can. I think that the the reason why we're starting to see this return to picking up collectibles is that it's an interesting way to communicate. You got something from killing by defeating this enemy. Here are the things that you get from defeating mm -hmm. this enemy. Here is your ammo. Here is your here is your loot, and here is your thing that will keep you going. But it's it's strange the way that it's represented. Yeah. It's like it being just represented as this heart on the ground. I'm like, ah, that's odd. It's, it kind of pulls me out of that immersion. It makes sense. Like I can see where their headspace was when they were designing that concept because Anthem is a game that's driven by loot. And so they, they I can see mm -hmm. where they were like, okay, how can we engage that pleasure center of the player's brains as they're looking for loot? Like, let's make a lot of the the core mechanics of this game. Let's tie that to loot as much as possible. So we'll tie healing to the this concept of looting and get, you know, and it's just all these like loops of like, oh, I see the loot come out. Oh, I can heal. And it seems, you know, it. I can understand where that concept comes from in the design process. But I think that when it comes to replenishing HP, we've seen games go one of two directions lately. Um, it's either been the... Uh, I don't know what to call it, like the Call of Duty method of like hide behind cover until you dr drain the blood from your eyeballs, or it's sure. or it's been the like the survival method, and I, I it's hard to place exactly where it came from, but I think of games like Resident Evil, 
where it's like collect things that will replenish your health at a future time and then you have to use them. And I feel like you don't see too many games anymore, uh, at least not so much in like the AAA space, where it's about picking up health along the way that immediately applies to your health bar. So hearing you talk about Anthem reminds me of this like older style of game design that I don't see too often anymore. Let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about Apex, which I think is a game that has gone more the survival route. And have, have, have we all played Apex? Yes. I think so. Yeah. Amanda, how has your Apex experience been? Like, <laughs> Well, I'm terrible we're at all Apex. Te- we're all terrible I'm, at this game. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so bad at Battle Royale games just in general because I get like, oh, I'm just running around. I'm picking up like great items and I'm exploring this cool map. And why am I dead? What happened? <laughs> Where's my teammates? I end up becoming the I end up becoming like that John Travolta gif where he's just oh, like, like looking around. Looking in around. Confusion. That's me. That's me every time. Uh, um I really, really like Apex Legends though. Even though I'm terrible at it, I think that they're doing a lot of things really fantastically, not just in terms of the way that they handle health and hit points and survivability, but in the way that they handle accessibility and approachability in terms of the battle royale genre. So Apex Legends is a pretty top shelf game, especially for a game that's free to play. How do you feel about the way that it handles hit points in that game? I think that it's, it makes battle royale less daunting, you know, because I'm so used to playing a game like, say, picking up Fortnite, because I was playing Fortnite last night on my phone randomly. I don't really know what prompted me to do this but I'm like I feel like playing Fortnite on my phone you know and it was like a couple shots and I'm dead and that's not usually how I like to play my games but I like the way that Apex handles it because you constantly have loot and you have mods for your health and there's the ability to like raise your buddies from the dead and there are ways to help heal people as they're dying like save them I just think it's just so much more interesting because there's a lot more nuance around what health and death and survivability means in Apex Legends. I can understand in Anthem where they were like, where that design philosophy for enemies dropping health when they're killed. I can understand in these games like uh, PUBG and uh, Fortnite and Apex where a lot of the fun of the game is like the looting process of like, oh, I, you know, I found this sweet loot. So to find a way to make HP a part of that experience like i don't think the game would be as it wouldn't feel as rewarding if the mechanic was hide behind cover until your health and your shields come back mm-hmm. so making making the recovering of hp a part of the actual looting experience i think is is very additive to that kind of game design and and born from the survival genre of, of game design but how are you enjoying apex jared i i like it a lot and it's the first battle royale that i haven't bounced off of immediately my immediate opinion, though, when I first started playing it was the time to kill was way too long because you can get, you know, like up to four bars of armor and then you have your HP. But then you also have all the items that replenish your replenish your your armor and your HP. Like you are mm-hmm. always finding health packs and Phoenix kits and shield batteries. And to me, I started I typically gravitate towards support characters. So I started with Lifeline and her main ability really is this health drone that very slowly will replenish your HP over time as long as you're standing within like five feet of it. Mm -hmm. And it felt a little underwhelming. That ability felt very underwhelming. But the more I play it, 
the more I'm realizing that it's this game's not really a hero shooter like something like Overwatch. Like no one character, no one legend in that game feels necessary to have on your team. And I think that's a good thing because her health drone isn't like it's not something that's going to save your whole team in a firefight. It's very situational. And I'm finding that to be true of most of the characters like uh, Bangalore's smoke. You know, it's situational. You don't always want to completely blind your teammates from what they're shooting at. Uh, you don't always want to deploy uh, Gibraltar's shield because you can't shoot out of it either. So wanted to say originally that like they need to rework maybe the amount of healing items in that game, but I, I feel like it's it's working. I'd like them to see it take it to some different levels. But I also think that the time to kill makes Apex kind of unique in that way, and being able to re- revive your, your teammates is another thing that really makes me interested in that I'm not waiting for a game for five minutes and then dying and waiting for mm-hmm. another game. I can have that redemption possibility. So to me, it, it seems like it's working. I'm interested to see how they balance it going into the future. There's a character that got leaked, the new the new legend called Octane, and his passive is when he's not in combat, he regains HP. That worries me a little bit because we already have so many healing options, but we'll see how it works out. I mean, the, the, the people who balance this stuff are, are very smart and i'm sure it'll work out but uh yeah it's it's, it's unique especially in the battle royale genre all right, i got a couple of thoughts on stuff that you said first of all time to kill does not seem to be a two-way street for me i feel like i get murdered so fast and i feel like i have to put so many bullets <laughs> into people before i drop them i just so assume that, that i'm bad at aiming so <laughs> well, no, I, that, I mean that's why it feels like yeah. feels like that it's just because i'm bad but i definitely feel like i drop so fast yeah, yeah, and do like three magazines like, into them how are they not dead the other thing I'll say is I've been watching some of the pro players stream and I think it's a pretty universal sentiment that Lifeline is the best hero in the game because of her healing ability. And for as small, you know, for as slow and as small an impact it seems like it has, it is overcoming one of the aspects of the game. It's overcoming the need to hold on to healing resources sure sometimes i literally just can't find a med kit to save my life i can't find syringes to save my life so to have a character that just has that ability built in i think is part of the reason people consider her so impactful even though it does feel minimal and slow well especially late game when the the circle is kind of small and you're not really sure where the enemy is at that point and you kind of want to just kind of hunker down until the next circle so you, you don't have to worry about wasting the last of your med kits you can just kind of gather around lifeline i feel like i could talk all day about apex what else do we want to talk about amanda what do you have any other games that you've played that you really enjoyed the way that they used hp systems in the games one of the better games that i've played that has had hmm, i think they probably shadow of the tomb raider shadow of the tomb raider has had some interesting the way that they handle health health bars and everything like that is that that's the most I, recent one right Yes, yeah, that's the most recent one. So that's that's the one I've spent the most time with recently because I was reviewing it. So death in, in Tomb Raider in general doesn't feel all that meaningful because it happens so often, especially in the older Tomb Raider games. But in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, death is part of learning. Hit points are, they're not that easy to regenerate. Like you have to get out of combat in order for it to be a thing or you have to duck behind cover. So it's a very Call of Duty, Mass Effect kind of thing where it's just like, ah, don't shoot me anymore. <laughs> but what I really liked about it is that it was, it never felt like your health points, like the way that you were making mistakes, like you were being punished over the long term. 
And I, I genuinely feel like the game designers wanted death to be such a minimal experience because they wanted you to get better so that you could jump right back into the story and, oh my goodness, yes, you did not do this correctly. And this is a very challenging part of the game. So yeah, you got pummeled by a bunch of debris on your way down in this sliding puzzle for whatever reason is in the middle of Shadow of the Tomb Raider. <laughs> so it, it's, it's weird. It's weirdly satisfying. It shouldn't be. It's one of those systems that shouldn't work. It shouldn't be enjoyable, but it somehow is because you're learning along the way. And it reminds me of the way, like the old school Tomb Raider games, where even though death wasn't necessarily meaningful, you were always learning. So that, I think, is probably one of the games that's most recently done things in a way that I can appreciate. Even if it's not necessarily something that's unique, I can at least appreciate it. This might be a good time to bring this up. There's something about the way that games like Tomb Raider or the way that Uncharted are designed that the I start to experience this dissonance where... I feel like my character shouldn't be able to sustain this much damage. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, so true. And, maybe, and, and, and I don't know what it is. It, it, maybe it's just because it's been it's been the way it is for so long, or maybe it could even have to do with the fact that graphics have gotten so much better. You know, like as these worlds start to seem so much more realistic, the idea exactly. of this human being enduring so much like gunfire and stuff just seems it, it starts to feel bizarre. Like, how does this? How does this woman it breaks immersion? Especially it, Red Dead in a game that it seems like yeah. immersion and realism are so important to it. Oh my gosh, Red Red Dead's funny. I saw people like online talking about. Oh, I I hope that uh, in Red Dead they use the N word because it would be historically accurate. And I was like, oh, I want to play the historically accurate Red Dead where you get shot once, get you know like laid up in a tent for two weeks and die of gangrene. Can we play that historically <laughs> accurate Red Dead? <laughs> Like if you want to talk about historical That's accuracy, be a yikes from me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> People are so weird. Like uh, they want like one aspect of historical accuracy, but I'm sure if the game I'm uh, I'm pitching made it out, they would not play it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is starting to feel weird that these characters can can take so many shots uh, and, and keep on trucking along, and it was actually recently brought up in the news that the the people who make Uncharted. They, they've come out and said that Nathan Drake doesn't actually get shot. Like, he doesn't take damage. Instead, what's happening is that his luck is running out. Uh, and, and Amy Hennig... Is that something they, that they really did, though? Like, I mean, I mean, I know that they said that, but was that... Is that uh, apparently, I, apparently, people... I, I, I've linked an article here in the show notes, and I'll make sure and, and tweet this article out when uh, this episode goes live so other people can take a look at it. But they said from the very beginning, and, and this is coming from Amy Hennig, said that from the very beginning they wanted Nathan Drake to be like the the heroes of film that he was uh, originally designed to mimic so someone like Indiana Jones you know you never see Indiana Jones get shot you see him get shot at so it's not that he's he's taking damage it's that he's just suddenly his luck runs out and he got shot once and died and that's what HP and death represents in that game Amanda does that argument hold water for you does that rationalization work it's interesting, but the the way that that's communicated in the game is through clear, visible signs of distress. So even if they move that over to Tomb Raider and said, well, Lara's luck is running out. Well, but no, Lara's actually damaged. You can see the physical damage mm -hmm. on her body, right? Mm -hmm. And she's clearly taking a beating. So I, maybe in Uncharted, maybe that could be a thing. But if there are physical signs of damage that go beyond, 
you know, a few scrapes and bruises here and there. I, I don't know. It's not communicated that way. But how do you communicate taking a hit to your luck? I know. As opposed to taking a hit to your health. It's, right? it's like, how odd. How do you communicate that to the average player that's just going to be like, okay, well, I don't care about the existential question behind what is health points. Just it, yeah, <laughs> no. like, let me play it's, the it's game. It's almost <laughs> just the same thing to most people. It is. Yeah. It, yeah. And I don't think that I don't think that it would necessarily matter. It still breaks immersion for me no matter no matter what in um in Uncharted because I feel like Nathan just takes such a beating, more mm-hmm. so than even Lara takes, and Lara takes a serious beating. But wow. He can just <laughs> keep going. Like how is that even it's not even possible. Like people <laughs> I don't care if that's communicated in luck or not, no one's that lucky. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I've been watching the Punisher series on Netflix and man, does he get his ass handed to him a lot and like to the point where he's like coughing up blood and it's just super violent. And then a couple of scenes later, it's like he has a bruise on his eye, but he's pretty good still. <laughs> he got shot five times, but it's fine. It's okay. Like they just don't even care. And I think that's one way to go about it in video games too. It's just like, eh, it's, it's a video game. But, but yeah, obviously, like games like Tomb Raider and, and Uncharted, they're trying for that realism. And those immersion. are people. Yeah, yeah, those are those are legit people. It's different in a game like Anthem or Destiny or whatever, where you're like, I'm a guardian, I'm in a javelin, mm-hmm. I'm a freelancer. You know, you can suspend like, some disbelief for that. You can yeah. because you're you're in a fantastical setting. But if you are if you are setting your game in the here and now, or in the relative here and now, and you are putting a person a person avatar through that kind of torture, yeah, it tends to break immersion. And for whatever reason, in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, it just works. I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> and it works in Uncharted 4, too. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the interesting it's thing, magic. The interesting thing that this idea that Nathan's luck is running out illuminated for me was that game developers are thinking about what HP means. We just haven't figured out a good way to communicate to the player what it truly represents. And when you're talking about something like luck with Nathan Drake, it feels like you're getting shot in that game. You know, like like mm-hmm. the it does. the language that's the haptic feedback. The language, yeah, exactly. The 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 language and the feedback that you're receiving as the player feels like okay, I'm getting shot, I'm getting shot, I'm getting shot, and now now he's taken one bullet too many and he's dead. Same thing in, in Tomb Raider. So there, it's clear that people are trying to think of this stuff. It's just it seems very difficult to then put those concepts into a game in a way that's going to be meaningful for the players. I also love getting shot up a bunch and then somehow a syringe heals me. <laughs> I like I like the games that that attempt to do things like oh your your leg is broken and then you bandage your leg and you're you know you're you're good to go, but it's so funny in something like Apex to to sustain a bunch of bullets and then somehow like whatever you're injecting in yourself is the cure. <laughs> they found the cure to bullet wounds in the future, Jared. It's you can inject it into yourself. <laughs> Far Cry 3 and 4 were the last ones that I played. And in that game, um, when you would take damage, you you had syringes that would restore your, your HP. I think you would also just restore HP out of combat too. But if you like fell off, a, if you took like falling damage, for example, uh, and you pressed the heal button without an actual healing item, you would, you would start like <laughs> reset your thumb. Like your thumb was dislocated and that was really nice. gross. Um, or sometimes he, he would take a knife and like, dig a bullet out of his arm but it was like always the same animation and it and it didn't change sometimes it just didn't even make sense like what i didn't even get shot there that was an arrow and uh <laughs> I, I got thought it was stabbed in the 
I got stabbed in the chest there. What's what's happening? Yeah, it, they like made an, a, a sort of an attempt to make it like, oh, here's the damage, and your guy's just wrapping some gauze around it. And now he's fine. Uh, so that was a little bit different. Now, Amanda, this is always our favorite part of the show when we go when we go negative. Uh, what are there any? Good games- thing we haven't done that yet. Oh, I know, I know. We've been. <laughs> it's like the theme of our show. But are are there any games that in your mind like really miss the mark in the way that they approach hit points? There are a lot of games that miss the mark <laughs> with regards to hit points. I, I love it. There are so many. A lot of them are from like beloved games. So when I think about hit points that never seem to be meaningful at all, they're always in turn-based RPGs. And I love turn-based RPGs, to be clear. Those are so much fun mm-hmm. to me. They are beloved. SRPGs are, are also really fun to me. But hit points don't seem to have any real meaning because you can always just heal back up and... Unless you're fighting a big boss that's clearly going to eat your face, you know, it's just, okay, well, now I load back and that was really boring. And now I lost like an hour of time for what reason? What did that teach me exactly? It taught me that I can't use this specific tactic, even though this boss just nuked me. So probably my least favorite would be, oh my goodness, even though I love this game so much would probably be like Final Fantasy X and their Mm. use of hit points. And just a lot of the early Final Fantasy games in general, they're amazing in terms of their storytelling, in terms of character development, in terms of their art direction and music and everything like that. But health? Health has no meaning. Yeah, It doesn't matter. You can always find another character to take Mm -hmm. that character's place if they suck. Or you can go heal up in the middle of combat and it doesn't matter. Or you can just use like, Cura and cure everybody. Yeah, I think it, or Curaga and cure everybody. So I mean, it just it's it's meaningless. I think it says something in those games that most of the time when I finish, especially like those old JRPGs, that I usually have like the max amount of potions and X potions and all that stuff in my, remaining in my inventory. Yeah, and I think that maybe says something about the way that that HP is used in that game. That um, that there maybe are too many ways to replenish HP, and it, it sort of does become meaningless in most contexts, except for maybe a fight here and there, but against you know particularly difficult bosses, like you're saying. Yeah, no, I, and that's one of the things I love. I, like when when we started this show, we decided to like design the show to discuss things in games, like especially games that we love, uh, but but picking out the pieces that just maybe go like unaddressed in everything. So I mm-hmm. I I'm notorious on this show for picking on Destiny, like one of my favorite one of my favorite games of all time, but it had it had a lot of faults. <laughs> so so I I love when people come on here and are able to uh speak critically of their, you know, their their favorite franchises and games because I think there is a lot of stuff in game design that goes uncriticized because it is just the way it's been forever. And as gamers, we haven't demanded any sort of replacement for it. We haven't we haven't considered what what they mean because it's just the way it's always been. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there there are certainly different ways that we're seeing franchises in JRPGs communicate health, I suppose. But it's still so rigid because we're still doing the same kinds of things that we've always seen. Mm-hmm. And why are we doing it? Because that's just the that's just the way it is. And when you think of a specific genre, you think of a specific way that they execute on specific mechanics and the way that, 
you know, strategy and tactical and turn-based RPGs tend to go is you have your health bar for each of your characters, and if they die, you raise them back up again and you start all over. And there's no real meaning to it. And I don't know how you can create meaning in those particular circumstances unless it becomes something really high stake, like in Fire Emblem, where it's like, no, dude, if you lose that character, mm-hmm. they're gone. You're not going to get them back. So you got to be really careful. You have to be strategic. So, yeah, I don't know how you can make health points and hit points valuable and meaningful in a in a JRPG like Final Fantasy when it's so easy to heal or even in like Octopath Traveler, which is another Square Enix mm-hmm. game, but still, it's it's still equally as meaningless and it's still a wonderful game. So, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that we're criticizing some of my favorite some of my favorite games. And, I like doing that. And I think you nailed it. I think there's there's those two things that can really make HP feel more meaningful in games, like the first one being scarcity, like not being able to just so readily replenish health, uh, and the other one being like risk or stakes, like what you know what is at risk if this runs out. I think those would go a long way to to making that aspect of the game feel more meaningful. Hard to communicate that to shareholders, though. Oh no, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and there's maybe an aspect of game design that's taking into account things like accessibility, which we talk about on this show from time to time, right? Like, mm-hmm. like accounting for all the different kinds of players that are going to be playing a game. You know, maybe for Absolutely. for people of able body and who are very familiar with games, you know, that part of the game is is not meaningful to us. But for people who are maybe new to games or have diminished capacities, you know. Maybe they do find the hit points a challenge and something that that's fun to sort of overcome, you know, like, like, how do I keep these characters alive? For sure. And there needs to be room for both. And I think that that's what we're starting to see more and more of these days is we're seeing not that there's concessions made in the game design per se, but that Mm -hmm. there's a level of inclusion so that, you know, disabled gamers are able to come into the conversation and be able to be seen and heard and like, oh my goodness, you did this thing, which might've been totally by accident, but it actually makes the game better for me. Thank you. So, and then it, it then it's not necessarily something that able-bodied gamers think about necessarily because, you know, that's our privilege is we don't have to think about it. Now, Jared, how about you? Are there any games that stick out in your mind for maybe missing the mark on the way that they implement hit points? Well, I want to go back to Resident Evil 2 for a second because I think you brought that up earlier as being a a negative example of this. Um, I brought it up earlier. I don't remember in what context. I say things, Jared. I don't listen to myself. <laughs> I don't listen to the words coming out of my mouth half the time. I just say things. <laughs> so I've been I've been playing the Resident Big Evil... Food. I've been playing through the uh, Resident Evil 2 remake. And, and I've been watching you on Twitch. It's I've been streaming it. It's it's a I, I, I am loving the game. I'm loving everything about the game, including the way that they handle damage and health. Such a big part of that game is obviously inventory management for one and, um, you know, navigating your resources, how many bullets you have left and how much healing items you have left and what you're keeping in storage versus what you're carrying on your person. I feel like they strike a really interesting balance, at least through my playthroughs, of I either have enough bullets to take care of whatever's in the hallways, or I have a few healing items, or if I take a hit, I'm feeling that I'm okay to, you know, I have I can heal myself back up to a point where I can comfortably uh, navigate through some enemies. And... Every time I feel like I'm running low on resources, it'll give me either one or the other, either more bullets mm-hmm. or more healing items. And I, I think that that is a really smart way to create tension, especially with uh, 
in that game they have a persistent nemesis that follows you around uh and it makes it it makes it really fun to try to solve puzzles and kind of think about your health in that way so i i, I don't know how other people feel about it it can i can see how it would be it would feel antiquated because you are having to carry around these items but for that specific example it works i don't know that it feels antiquated though jared because i think like I was saying earlier, like modern game design, I think with a, in regards to HP has kind of gone one of two ways. One of them is the, the you know, like hide behind cover and heal up. And the other one is the survival way, which I think Resident Evil did a big, played a big part in pushing game design in that direction of like, look, you can carry around these healing things, but they're going to be in place of something else in your inventory. I am a big fan of survival games. I love, you know, like DayZ is one of my favorite gaming experiences I've ever had in my entire life. And so much of that is like, oh, we got to get food, you know, like to, to survive. And there's not really like a good way to measure health in that game, but it's about, you know, collecting, managing the resources that you're carrying on your person, that kind of stuff. So I, I really like that, that that kind of design for the way that it addresses hit points and replenishing hit points. It's also silly that you just eat some plants that you found on the ground. Well, I'm really wondering <laughs> what that represents in the game what what because you don't really have like a numerical value you have like fine caution and danger mm -hmm. are your your health statuses and it's already silly that you can get tackled by a zombie or something take a huge bite out of your shoulder and you don't mm -hmm. turn into a zombie like that doesn't even make sense within the fiction that they've established really um but you know what what it does do is play into the tension and the horror of the experience and so uh, to me I, if you look at it that way it makes more sense that Yes, I have these resources. Otherwise, I'm going to you have to you know reload a save, or if you're playing on higher difficulties, you know whatever it may be. So thinking about the definition of what actual what health means in that game, I think could be a whole discussion in itself. Resident Evil is not alone in that though. Like this idea of like, oh, I just eat a random plant off the ground and I feel better. Yeah, you know, I mentioned Castlevania earlier, yeah. which was notorious and for, the wall turkey. and the wall yeah. turkeys exactly. Like we have a long history in video gaming of like nonsense ways of replenishing health and that it still exists in some capacity in a lot of games like shooting a syringe into your veins to heal your bullet wounds you know <laughs> i think that one of the one of the things that i wanted to talk about was about a relatively new game that i haven't had a ton of experience with but i really like the concept of how they handle hit points and i just remembered that i wanted to bring this up um so it's a devolver game called scum and Scum is another kind of Battle Royale-ish game. It's really, really beautiful. And the way that they handle their hit points and, and their health is everything is incredibly nuanced. So you have like your, your, your health is, your overall health is determined by things like your body fat. And because you can sit around, you could just be totally lazy and just sit down and eat candy bars. And then you're just really easy to kill later. <laughs> <laughs> um. But I really, I really like how nuanced it is. It's not just about survival, and it's not even necessarily about min-maxing like we see in, in RPGs where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to be the tank, so obviously I need to have the most hit points because I have to soak all the damage. I, I like it because there's a level of granularity there where the smallest decisions matter. So I'm going to go eat this apple versus I'm going to eat this candy bar really translates to a real life oh well that makes sense i mean that's how i have to live my life yeah, didn't that doesn't that game have like or my apple doesn't it have like 
bars for your like vitamin deficiencies and yeah. stuff like you have to keep it your does. vitamin it's levels incredibly up incredibly granular it says i think that how they described it to me when i previewed it at pax east last year was as a survivability simulator like a survival simulator where everything mattered every little piece of the decisions that you're making within the capacity of the game matters and that to me is fascinating terrible at the game fascinating game though and I wanted to bring it up earlier, but I was like, oh, what was that game I was thinking about? <laughs> oh, Scum. <laughs> I see so many games in the course throughout the course of a year that it's hard to keep track of them all. And that's and and that's really fun game design. It, that makes me think of this game that Jared and I used to play when, when we would do some land parties, which was the ship. Did you ever play the oh, ship? Oh yeah. No, I didn't play the ship. So the ship is a game where it's like it, kind of a battle royale, I guess, like a like an old precursor to battle royales, where essentially uh, all the players get put onto a, a vacation destination. In most cases, it's like a, a cruise ship and you are assigned one target, which is someone else on the boat that you have to kill. And so basically everyone is assigned one target that's someone else. So that means you're someone's target on the boat. So you're trying to kill your target without being killed by your, like whoever's pursuing you. But the thing that made the game really cool was that there was all these different things, all these different aspects of your character that you had to pay attention to. Like you had to use the restroom, you had to eat and drink, you had to be entertained. Like if your entertainment bar got too low, like there would be negative consequences. So you'd have to go read a book uh, or like listen to music or dance to music. So there were you were constantly having to manage all of these different aspects of your well-being, which forced you to like walk around the ship so you weren't always just like camping out in the same place and you know you're putting yourself in potentially dangerous situations where your assailant could find you but of course everyone on the ship's doing it so you're also looking for the person as they're trying to go to the bathroom or whatever it is i, I really <laughs> like the idea that your survival depends on being able to adapt to your situation you know mm -hmm. in most games hp is just a representation a number representation of of you know right before you die or whatever but being able to have other options to solve that problem other than a health kit or something mm -hmm. I think really appeals to me in, in theory. You know, it's not for every game, but obviously, but um, I, I do like that idea. And with that, I guess I'll throw this to, to you, Amanda. How can the industry improve? How can we make hit points a better experience for the player? Mm, I think by making death meaningful again. Like we've said at numerous times throughout this episode, Death is really meaningless in a lot of capacities. And I think mm -hmm. that's why people are gravitating towards the battle royale genre is because death is somehow meaningful now. And once you're out, you're out. Unless you're in Apex Legends, in which case you can be out, but only kind of mm -hmm. until you die super death. Super death. <laughs> <laughs> trademark, by the way. TM. Trademark. <laughs> trademark super death. Um, it's so great, though. I'm so happy with the idea of super death. I'm going to steal that. Perfect. Forever. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that by making death meaningful and by creating situations that are making use of death as a meaningful construct rather than it just being a, you made a huge mistake. Okay. You have to go back some. Okay. But what does that mean? What does death actually mean in this game? And not by punishing the player per se, but having it actually mean something mm -hmm. like, do you, is it like in super meat boy, right? If we're thinking about, you know, modern-ish games that make an interesting use of the death mechanic you have to see how many times you screwed up in that in in that darn level in order to figure out like oh my goodness look at how many meat boys died have you to know? or get to oh you get to yeah, it's, I know. it's it is so i mean in some levels in some levels it's have to because you're oh, like yeah. i'm so ashamed of myself right now that's the easiest level 
how did I do? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Don't look. Everyone look away. I'm ashamed. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I think about it is the, the way to make hit points and health better is by making death a meaningful experience in the game and have it mean something either to the story or to the overall flavor of the game itself. And when we start doing that, when we start doing that in a way that is inclusive of, of different, you know, abilities, then, I mean, then we've really got something. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll maybe add on to that a little bit because um, I agree with what you're saying. I think that the consequences for running out of health is an important part of making health feel like a meaningful aspect of the experience. But the other thing that I would personally like to see if we're talking about how to make this, how to make hit points better is to find ways to represent other aspects of human well-being beyond just the capacity to like take physical damage. One of the games that we didn't bring up, but I, I put in the notes er a little earlier is Amnesia, which is a game that you're not necessarily dying per se in that game, but you're managing your sanity. And I thought that that was an interesting way to sort of approach this thing because functionally it kind of works the same, right? Like if you're captured or you go insane, like time to start over again. But it, it's at least trying to think about, you know, in that game, they're trying to think about what's another way that we can express the human condition. So they're talking more about like psychological trauma instead of just physical trauma. And I think if we can sure. find ways to maybe have a lot of these systems interplay like the you know someone's mental well-being and their physical well-being uh and their their happiness and their <laughs> capacity for empathy and and like you know there's a lot of different metrics you could use but if you can find ways to have these things interplay in different ways it it can also make hit points or like the idea of hit points more meaningful Jared I'm talking like a stoner right now <laughs> no this is all this is all very intangible to talk about in a it lot is of ways. you know it's existential like yeah. we were talking about at the beginning mm -hmm. i mean you could totally misinterpret what i said at the beginning is like why is amanda totally off her rocker <laughs> it's um no you because of, you know you went there that's that's i i love when i, our, I love when guests just go there because that's the kind of stuff that i think about when i think about game design is like what is what does it mean? What does it all mean? So and I appreciate existential uh, philosophy uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, it's a good thing I took a philosophy class in university. Totally appreciate that you went there. <laughs> I'm glad because it totally, in my mind, made me sound sound like I was on drugs. I'm like, they're totally gonna think I'm nuts, <laughs> but I think about it as my soul. Yeah. that's the representation of hit points in games. Is how many lives do you have? Mm -hmm. What version of this character mm -hmm. are you? It's just one of those mechanics that has been around for. The, almost the entirety of video games that people just don't think about it anymore. It just, it just is, it just you know, is. you can see it in almost every game. I personally would like to see the end of HP bars and armor bars. I just, I feel like that's, we can do better. Like I said, like any, any way that any progression towards a game over screen or having to start over could be handled in a different way, like whether it's changing your objective or just changing up your play style in ways that's other than like, I need to find a health kit. Yeah. I just feel like we've done that. We've been there. Let's let's explore other avenues. And we're seeing that with some games. But yeah, I would like to see some creativity brought to that aspect of it because it just gets added in as like, oh, of course, there's going to be HP in this game. Every game has that. If you have any questions or comments about hit points or any of our previous topics, you can always email us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. I'm going to throw this one out there. I haven't done this in a little bit, but if you have ideas for future topics you want us to cover, send those along. My, uh, my list of ideas is, is dwindling, so I need you to help me out. <laughs> Jared, let's look at some listener feedback. What do we got? 
back in episode 41 with Kim and Ari, we were talking about their ARG games. And Steve, you brought up, um, we're trying to think of the name of a game that we played or we wanted to play in high school. It was sort of an uh, ARG type game where they would like call your house mm-hmm. phone, give you clues. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't remember the name of it. I, I, I just vaguely remembered it. I was like, there was this game. I think it came out around this time. Yeah, because we never actually played it, but we talked about it a lot because it sounded yeah. really cool. Anyways, at Aeon of Discord on Twitter reached out to us and he said the mysterious ARG that Steve the Gamer couldn't remember was called Majestic. It came out in 2001. That's right. That was the <laughs> name of the game. That was so the name of the game. I can't believe I couldn't remember it. I was thinking like Illuminati, something like that. Oh, was, that was yeah, it. you weren't that too far it. off. It, it was called Majestic because apparently it was based off of this uh, conspiracy theory, of mm-hmm. Majestic 12, which was yes. like a, a secret organization that was doing something, covering up UFOs, I think. I don't know. I remember this. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, for sending that feedback along. I was I was struggling because I knew it existed. Well, actually, I wasn't sure it existed. I was pretty <laughs> sure it existed. I, I know that we talked about it. I was like, I don't know if it came out or if it's something we read about as a concept. Yes. But yeah, thanks for reaching out. I'm, I'm glad that other people remember that game because I don't know anyone who actually played it. Internet is such a wonderful resource. Like to just some, be, to some. just be able to be like dumb and have someone who's knowledgeable like correct you. <laughs> well, okay, maybe maybe that's a bad way to say it. Like now I'm gonna get all kinds of corrections. But <laughs> I think I, I read where it's like if you're trying to find the answer to something online don't ask a question just say something that you know is wrong because someone will correct you <laughs> that's genius that's fair that's very that's, that's really got to be true well aeon of discord thank you so much for sending that feedback to us thank you for setting me straight it, that was totally the game i was thinking of it, it was great that you came up with that is that it jared that's it for feedback this week all right cool like i said you can always reach out to us at podcast at gbfeature.com and uh correct me do it i need i need as many corrections as possible i'm i, I don't know what i'm talking about most of the time on here jared I've never been wrong in my life. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what a what a pair. <laughs> we're the we're the we're the new odd couple. <laughs> I love it. I was just thinking of the odd couple, and that's just brilliant. <laughs> well, on on that note, we're going to bring this episode to a close. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Amanda Farrow. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a, a pleasure to have you on this show. I had a blast. That was who knew hit points and health would have that much riveting discussion Ex- and existential philosophy exactly i you know like i i kind of threw the topic out there it's one that that i've been thinking about for a while but i hadn't devoted too much thought to and when i started writing the notes i was like oh no this episode might go long <laughs> <laughs> you're right though you're right D- amanda where can people keep up with you where can they find the the work that you do uh, so you can find me on gamedaily.biz and superparent.com and i am most often on twitter as at Amanda Farrow, and you can get the spelling of my name from, you know, the show notes and stuff, because my last name is weird. So that's where you can find me. And I'm really accessible and easy to chat with. So if you have any questions for me about journalism and media and video games, and also my weird existential feelings about souls and <laughs> and lives in video games, I would be happy to discuss these things with you. Now you're going to be at a uh, GDC coming up. I will. I will be at GDC, and I am speaking at the speaking at a marketing summit around the same time as well. You can also find me on five different panels at PAX East. Oi! Oh my goodness, there are so many panels that I'm on. I'm on a couple of parenting panels. I'm on a panel about the console wars of 2013 to nowish, 
and a panel that's a that's about the the games of yesterday influencing today so we're looking at retro games and we also are doing a video game marketing panel about the best marketing campaigns and the worst marketing campaigns in video games oh, the last time that i, I did that i got up. to drag oh my goodness the last time we did that i got to drag daikatana and it was perfect <laughs> <laughs> that's where you can find me Amanda, again, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And congratulations again on the uh, the move up. That's big news. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm very excited. Game Daily and Super Parent, they're my babies. And I have such wonderful staff on both sites. And I just, I can't wait to see what the future is going to hold. I will encourage all of our listeners, go check out those websites. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment to let you know that Jared and I have some travel plans coming up in March, so we might miss our next episode's release date. Um, we got we to gotta figure it out. We, we may, we may not. But in any case, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner on Twitter. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, bye. 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 <laughs> I'm running out of HP. <laughs> oh, no, Jared. Uh, actually, can you give me like two minutes? My dog is freaking out. I think he saw a squirrel or something. The tree puppies, they vex us so, mother. <laughs> I don't know. I would like to eat that tree puppy. They're, that tree rat. They're, it, it, is, it is taunting your me. Your dogs are 18th century witches. Mm-hmm.